You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Gonna pray. Hello again, friends, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. I am Danny Anderson, Assistant Professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Pennsylvania. Uh, and before we dive in today's topic, uh, into today's topic, I want to remind everybody uh, to subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever, uh, and really importantly, review the show via your chosen podcatcher. That gets the word out, apparently, and gets more folks involved. And I'm promising to read iTunes reviews as soon as they come in, and I am still waiting for more. So I'm looking at the Facebook feed here right now. And by the way, once again, I am uh, live streaming the first few minutes of this on Facebook. Facebook. And so if you have any uh, uh, comments to make there before I delete the call, please do let me know. Um, so uh, I do have a nice piece of feedback, though, speaking of Facebook, from uh, Zachary Rogers over at the show's Facebook page um, about our last episode on the Justice League movie. And I just real quickly want to, uh, to read that. Uh, Zachary said, uh, that he was looking forward to listening to the episode. I agree that modern audiences have difficulty connecting with the traditional mythic or religious arc of the Snyder trilogy, man of steel, Batman versus Superman and justice league. I personally enjoyed all three films, especially Superman's journey through the three films. I think a lot of fans struggled with the fact that Snyder gave the world a series of existential superhero films. I agree with this. Uh, in Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman, we see Superman wrestle with his identity as both a man and a god. Uh, excuse me. He is not the Boy Scout, nor is he trained from childhood, as he is in the comics, to believe that he owes the world anything. His parents would prefer him to stay hidden. The three films show the journey of Superman becoming Superman through a series of choices rather than being innate to his character. Uh, Superman is not virtuous, but through his actions, he becomes virtuous. I think fans similarly struggled with Batman. The Batman in Batman vs. Superman makes a series of decisions based on what he thinks is right and just, but he learns in the end that he is mistaken. Batman doesn't become the Batman that we all know until Justice League because he has to learn from his mistakes. Doomsday and Batman's visions of the future reshape his understanding of the world and Superman's role in it. Uh, that's a really great piece of feedback. I loved um, reading that, um, Zach, and uh, thanks for posting it. And uh, so be like Zachary and let us know what you think. The Facebook page is a great place to uh, to uh, to find that kind of information. And uh, on to today's topic, though. Um, I don't want to leave you hanging too long. Uh, today we're going to be exploring and maybe reminiscing just a bit uh, the long gone days of your when if you wanted to watch a movie at home that wasn't on television, you had to drive your lazy butt over to a video store and scope out your options. Blockbuster is, of course, the big symbol for this era, but there were tons of places to go as well. And some of what we'll be doing today is romancing that era, 
But my guest today also thinks that there is a lesson to be learned beyond the commerce of movie consumption. And he wonders if the American church has undergone undergone its own kind of Netflixization. Uh, so joining me today is Seth Lancaster, uh, who is a regular listener to the show and sent me an email over at sectarianreview at gmail.com with a link to an article by Kate Hagen called In Search of the Last Great Video Store. And that's already up on the Facebook page, and I will put it in the show notes to this, too. Uh, and Seth wanted to come over onto the show uh, to talk about it, and I thought it was a great idea, so here we are. And just as a reminder, this is something that you can all do as well. Don't be shy. Uh, uh, Seth, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and why this stood out to you as a good uh, sectarian review topic? Well, uh, thanks, Danny. Um, it's great to be on the show. Um, I am uh, 32 years old. Uh, my wife and I have four kids. Uh, I live in Springfield, Missouri, uh, just uh, about a half hour south of Coyle and uh, Alexis Neal. Um, of the City of I, Man uh, podcast. What's that? Of the City of Man podcast. Oh, yes. Plug for our <laughs> friends over there. Not that I know them. We don't drive to Bolivar very often. But uh, I um, was uh, I got a bachelor's degree in youth ministry and Bible slash theology uh, several years back. Um Worked bivocationally as a youth pastor for a few years and then uh, left that to uh, get an MFA in creative writing. Um, and I'm currently driving a delivery truck and trying to keep up with writing and uh, looking for uh, work as a, a teacher of some sort. So uh, that's kind of where I'm at. And th this article, uh, after I read it, um, just really grabbed my attention, uh, having worked at Blockbuster during my time at Bible College. Uh, and just uh, so a lot of it hit home for me um, as far as, you know, nostalgia and uh, some of the problems with the movie industry and some of the, uh, the things that we've lost in the last decade or so. Uh, and it, it seemed like a good topic for the show because, uh, you know, pop culture, capitalism, uh, church, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, we have a, uh, a mixed uh, bag of topics here for sure. And, and I wonder <laughs> sometimes, honestly, if that impedes our show's audience, uh, because most podcasts, I mean, there's a pretty stable you know, topic or ideological stand that they take. And that's why people listen to it. Your pod save America crowd and all that, you know, and, uh, and I, uh, I wonder sometimes if the fact that we seem to have a foot in a political world and in a church world and in a pop culture world and in a whatever quote unquote high culture academic world, if that doesn't screw with people's brains a little bit. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> but you know what? The people that do show up like Seth are awesome. And so um, I'm more about quality than quantity in terms of my listeners. So I think you're right. And I think you're totally right. This is like the perfect topic. It's a little less sort of specific than we have been getting lately. Uh, it's a more kind of a general topic, but it, it's such a, a perfect fit for what we do here. I'm uh, super excited to uh, uh, to uh, um, take it on here. I have a Facebook comment here from my cousin, Peggy Sue, says, hey, Danny, and hello to Peggy <laughs> Sue if she's listening to the podcast. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to uh, just give a little preview here for the Facebook audience here about where this episode is going to be going. And then I want to kind of uh, set you guys off on your way. And you can listen to the show on Thursday. Like I said, if you go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, I did just uh, get us uh, listed on uh, TuneIn uh, to a via a listener request so if you 
however you get your uh, your podcast, you can find us there. Listen to the show on Thursday when it gets released, and uh, and uh, and please shoot us any questions afterwards. We're going to be talking about our kind of memories of video stores here real quickly. Seth actually used to work at a Blockbuster, uh, and I practically lived in a video store growing up. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk about this particular article, standout sort of elements of this article. And we're going to talk about the kind of metaphor of community, um, that these stores, these old stores, and some of these new stores um, are representing. And then we're going to talk about the metaphor that this uh, subject kind of offers us to think about the church and society today. So I'm going to say goodbye to our Facebook uh, listeners right now and uh, and shoot it off to Seth here real quickly um, about uh, uh, his memories of, of video stores. Like, what is it that uh, uh, stands out to you? Uh, well, uh, I guess my earliest memories, um, I grew up in a small town with uh, just one or two mom and pop kind of stores. Uh, I remember one called video two that uh, definitely had uh, a distinct cigarette smell when you walked in there. Uh, not a lot of light. Um, the shelves were made out of these like wooden lattice things. And uh, I was not allowed to look at very many of the movie covers. Uh, <laughs> I know I got my first glimpse of Chucky in that store and it <laughs> frightened me as a small child. Uh, I remember mostly being interested in the uh, Nintendo Entertainment System games that they had uh, for rent at that store. Um, when I was about 12 or 13, a uh, movie gallery moved into our town and put all the mom and pops out of business. Um, and that was kind of when I was probably coming of age and starting to get interested in, um, seeing different movies than just what my parents were bringing home and stuff like that. I remember, um, a friend of, of mine and I would ride our bikes to the nearest movie gallery to his house and, pick stuff out. Uh, this is probably around the time DVD was really becoming the main medium. Um, and so, uh, I had a DVD player in my room and I was, you know, watching all kinds of these things that I, uh, hadn't seen before. And that was kind of cool. And then, um, whenever I went to college, I got a job at Blockbuster and that's kind of when I really started getting educated, uh, movie wise, uh, renting all kinds of different things from, uh, the past and, uh, filling in kind of the gaps in my movie knowledge. Um, and, and blockbuster, I have like good and bad associations <laughs> with it, you know, um, as all employees do with everywhere they work, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> it was, it was mostly a good job, but there was a lot of, uh, just corporate oversight uh, mm. and and sometimes it didn't seem like they cared about movies or customers or employees <laughs> they only cared about you know their the latest uh, program they were trying to push or whatever but uh it was definitely a good job made some good friends we always had stuff to talk about um because we we were all movie fans and we kind of had that uh that classic movie clerk uh sarcastic <laughs> uh my taste is better than yours attitude yeah. uh going on but <laughs> yeah it, it shares a lot with like sort of record store culture i think in that way yeah right uh yeah uh, like the movie high fidelity comes to mind right um mm -hmm. yeah yep. yeah i can totally see this and, and you remember like people like quentin tarantino i think they worked at video stores right that's where they right people like him i know that's where he gained his cinematic knowledge from is through just immersing himself into that culture via this, this vehicle. Right. And so you had a, a very similar experience. So 
Yeah. Well, um, and I'm so I'm an old, a very, I'm a very old person. And so not that old actually, <laughs> but, uh, um, but I'm a, I'm a right in the middle of generation X. And so I remember when we first got a VCR, I was probably in junior high. And I remember going to video stores when this is before DVDs, of course, and they were still half um, VHS and half beta. Uh, the, mm. the, the Betamax uh, VHS format wars hadn't been concluded yet. They were still ongoing. And having worked in television years ago, there are people that still bemoan the fact that beta lost. They thought that Betamax was such a better format than, than VHS. And now, of course, they're all, you know, obsolete because of streaming and, and DVDs before that. But, um, and so I remember you had to go to the half of the store that actually carried the format that you, you owned yeah. at home, right? Um, but I, I just remember being so excited as a, particularly as a, I grew up Nazarene and back then we weren't allowed to go to movies. Uh, I think that, that at some point in the recent past that has changed. Uh, but when I was a kid, we weren't allowed to go to movies, but there was this, DV, you know, video loophole, right? And so this was, <laughs> this was my kind of way into what everybody else was talking about. And of course I got there six months later, but I was able to then, you know, finally watch Back to the Future and all these uh, great movies that everybody, all of my friends sort of knew. And so, um, it was for me a really, um, important, um, part of me growing up is that's sort of my immersion into this bigger world, right? The, the, the video store and, and honestly, I was into video stores before Blockbuster became Blockbuster. We're sort of like the late 80s, early 90s is when Blockbuster sort of took over that market. Am I, am I kind of right about that? I think so. I mean, like I said, we didn't have a Blockbuster in my town. It was um, Movie Gallery that, that kind of replaced all those mom and pops. And that, I want to say, was probably like 98-ish. Yeah. Um, but I know the bigger cities had Blockbusters. Yeah. Before that time. So, uh, yeah, they came in. But uh, by then, I mean, I was already kind of committed to my local video store. Mm -hmm. and, and honestly, I can't remember the name of it. I feel ashamed all day. I've been racking my brain <laughs> to try and remember the name of this old video store. But the old guy that, that ran that owned it, he like got to know me after a while. Right. And so he would see the kind of things I would rent. I was always in. He had a little room for the horror films. And so I was always in the horror film room, just like gawking at the Lord covers and all that kind of thing. And uh, which is something another experience is lost uh, via the streaming format. Um, but he, uh, would sort of get to know my taste and, and recommend other movies for me. And, and that's just something that Netflix's algorithm hasn't like <laughs> fully replaced for me satisfactorily. Um, and an interesting side note about that guy and his store, he ended up selling the video store. I think he saw where things were going with, um, with this sort of thing. So he sold it and ended up buying like a, a small, a couple of, uh, livery vehicles and ran it like a limousine service so his specialty was like he bought like an old-timey uh car and uh like i don't know some car from like the 40s some giant like sedan from the 40s and would rent it out and my in-laws for my wedding found this guy and uh and had him he was actually the chauffeur chauffeur for my <laughs> wedding in this old car and i walked in i'm like what are you doing here <laughs> <laughs> like, I had no idea that was even that was a surprise like gift for us, and uh, and so like what a perfect transition from my old life awesome. to my new life actually. So um, yeah, so video stores are like a very special like memory for me, uh, and so yeah, that's uh, kind of what I wanted to talk about. Um, so the article that you sent to me, I thought was just really great. It's called "In Search of the Last Great Video Store." 
it's on something called the Blacklist blog, which I looked into. It's kind of like a movie industry kind of uh, online uh, magazine. Uh, is that uh, that's the best way I could? Uh, I guess. I, uh, ironically enough, I found it because Facebook's robots suggested it to me. <laughs> so <laughs> awesome. Uh, but it was by Kate Hagen, and it's a it's a it's a great read. First of all, it's a great history of the past. It's a great um, explanation of streaming. There's a lot of really interesting information about uh, the new kind of streaming era. But then she goes on this little tour of trying to find quirky video stores that are still in existence today. Uh, and, and it becomes this really kind of interesting, almost Hunter S. Thompson-esque uh, sort of um, <laughs> journey through the valley kind of thing. Um, and so what was it, Seth, some of the elements of that essay that kind of stood out to you as interesting? Uh, well, the the first part um, where she just lays out how uh, streaming services, there's kind of a myth of uh, what she calls an endless streaming catalog. And she just exposes how there there are not endless options on, on these things. Um, Netflix has dropped uh, from 6,000 plus films to almost exactly in half. Mm-hmm. Uh in the, uh, just a couple of years. Um, and she goes through, she talks a little bit about Hulu and Amazon. Also, um, they didn't have as much data available, I think, but, uh, they kind of start at least Netflix started out with a bigger catalog than they have now. And now they've very much prioritized original content and television, um, over movies. And she, um, she talks about how there's just a lot of movies that are that never made it to DVD, that will never make it to Blu-ray, will never make it to streaming. Some of that's because of copyright issues, and some of it's just because there's not enough profit in it to put them out. Yeah. Uh, and so there's for later generations there's this these huge gaps in movie history that they're just not going to have. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of the first thing that stood out. Um, and then, yeah, her, her kind of quest to find the last great video store. She lives in LA and there's five of these kind of indie stores that she visits that seem like, uh, a real blast from the past. And, and some of them are, are even better than what old movie stores were, would have been They're They're heavily curated and uh, designed to, um, help people understand the the history of film yeah. and uh they have a lot of nostalgia and you know different kinds of swag that they sell to but uh <laughs> as you have to right in that in that way yeah. <laughs> they, they resemble kind of the old record store model i think they're mm-hmm. kind of um it's it's a little reminiscent of the you know fairly recent phenomenon of the lp making a comeback the vinyl mm-hmm. um and it's more it's more for a curated specialist kind of maybe you can say hipster audience right um but somebody who's looking for something other than just the pure transactional experience of watching a movie right they want to immerse themselves into some kind of community uh and and so this article is a really great template i think for where we want to kind of extrapolate out from uh as we as we start talking about what this all means for the church later on for you religious folks out there. Uh, again, uh, half of my audience are like leftist Marxists and the other yeah. half are like 
are like uber conservative religious folks. And so, uh, we should have a conference and get everybody together and have a big fight. Um, but, um, but a couple, I just want to sort of follow up on a couple of things. I, I unfortunately forgot to play. I found an old blockbuster commercial just to sort of uh, get you in the mood for this show. I meant to play it earlier, but, uh, but have a listen to this, see if it jingles any uh, memories here. Imagine the perfect video store. It would have a great selection, right? Right! Over 10,000 videos. Three evening rentals, so no rush, no hassle. Fast checkout. 24-hour quick drop return. Open late every night. Well, the perfect video store... Welcome to Blockbuster Video! ...is popping up all over the country. There's one near you. Blockbuster Video! I totally remember that jingle, right? Uh, it's a, an unforgettable jingle. Um, and so, yeah, and, and on, honestly, that is a, a moment of transition, right? That is video stores in the kind of mom and pop sense had existed before this already, right? Blockbuster is kind of re like sort of corporatizing the, that a little mm-hmm. bit. So I, I don't want to make Blockbuster itself into this heroic entity that we've lost because yeah. <laughs> Blockbuster itself kind of did what Netflix is doing now to other video stores. Right. And so mm-hmm. I, I really, I think we, it, it's tempting to give it too much credit, but, um, the, as a metaphor for the whole, the chain, I think blockbuster is a, is a perfect one. Um, and so, yeah, you were talking about a, a number of points in that article that I want to kind of just, uh, kind of dwell on for just a little bit. The, um, the idea when streaming began, and I remember when Netflix started, it was, a mail in a mail order um, service of physical mm-hmm. discs, right? And so that was a perfect competition for Blockbuster because they literally you could get anything. For a while, my wife and I were really into Hungarian movies, and so we like went through all the Hungarian movies that that there they had, and you could get almost anything that was ever printed on DVD uh, mm-hmm. mailed right to your house, and and the quality of the disc was always good. And so um, I ended up finding block or excuse me netflix through that and then the streaming thing if i remember right was just sort of oh here's an added bonus here's a few movies that you can stream right and then the streaming thing just totally in uh overwhelmed the uh the physical uh disc portion of their business although she makes an interesting point that's actually still very profitable for them the physical discs uh uh, they make a lot of money off of that their profit margin is much higher there than anywhere else uh which is an interesting uh, phenomenon actually um but um and so when netflix comes in you get this sense this kind of false sense of liberation like a i don't have to go anywhere to find the movie i want it's just going to be there on my television screen whenever i want it right um but the number she gives uh since 2010 the total number of feature films available to stream on netflix has dropped from 67.55 to 36.86 right and so that's a significant change uh, in their business model and they've gone to more self-produced movies and uh like TV series, right? And at some point in the article, she says that that Netflix claims that 66% of their audience never watches movies. They only watch TV shows. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so it says something about us. Um, and then, you know, Amazon has quite a bit more um, and it has not only free movies for Prime members, but you can rent a lot of movies, right? And so it seems like it's a, a, um, a benefit but the big point is what's being left out are older movies. Like Netflix had like, I don't know, what did she say? Like 
four movies from the thirties or something. Like yeah. That. I think it's, I think it's like only three movies from before 1950. Yeah. Uh, and only like what, uh, just a couple hundred of stuff before 1990. Um, maybe even less than that. I can't find it, but yeah, very, very much prioritizes the, the last two decades, uh, and, and has hardly anything from, uh, the fifties through the eighties. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and it has a, uh, then this kind of, um, uh, it's, it's curating the viewing experience for people, but it's very much valuing the present, right? You're losing all connection to the tradition of cinema. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and she has a really, if I can quickly find it, uh, a really lovely, transitional paragraph when she goes off into searching for the the perfect video store um and this is a lovely piece of writing here how will we create new movie lovers when we've taken away one of the easiest entry points to learning about and loving film when so few classic films are available to stream when no one offers them a guide of how to understand cinema's history how do we assure that most films, even something like Fresh Horses, which is the movie she was looking for on streaming, and it doesn't yeah. stream, um, are available to anyone who wants to watch them? What happens to Hollywood history when films aren't being protected, preserved, and well presented as we jump to each technological platform? Right. And so there's a kind of mournful tone to this, uh, to these rhetorical questions that she's asking. Uh, and I think they bring up this really, um, interesting, concept of tradition and like canonicity right why why is it important seth for us to have for younger people to watch older movies well for one thing i think uh to help them understand the older generation um there's a lot of uh (laughs) you see a lot these days of you know uh people just completely talking past each other online or, or whatever. Um, if they're talking politics or, um, even just, it seems like they're living in two different worlds. And, uh, I think, you know, I, I'm not claiming that movies would automatically help you understand someone 30 years older than you, but it, it would not having that contributes to just the tone deafness. Um, that younger people can have toward older people, I think. Yeah. And, and their position in society, like honestly, and and again, whenever I get into this conversation, I, I am fully aware (laughs) of the, you know, old guy ism of, you know, these kids today. Right. And I am not a, these kids today person at all. Right. I, I think those arguments are usually dumb, but I do remember, and this isn't to blame anybody, right. But this is sort of a, an observation about the way things used to work back before, media was tailored for specific audiences. There wasn't like, I mean, there was, there was Nickelodeon when I was a kid, but it wasn't like such a major part of, of, I mean, we still watch shows with my parents. Like I'd sat down at night mm-hmm. and watched night court when night court was yeah. on with my parents. Right. Uh, and so um, it's one of those uh, uh, moments in, in the past where not only was I watching a movie or a TV show with older people, which is a point of connection to the past right there, the content in those things was not for my generation, right? So they're making references to Mel Torme all the time in Night yeah. Court, right? And he's on the show a lot. I would have never, and so later on, I know who Mel Torme is. I just sort of naturally absorbed that. I grew up watching reruns of I Love Lucy, which is way before my time, right? But because mm-hmm. of that, I have sort of a, a cultural vocabulary of a time before mine. Not to say that that was all great, right? And, and that we should go back to that 
weirdly misogynistic relationship <laughs> of, of, of Lucy and Ricky. Right. Um, but, uh, uh, but, you know, experiencing that is important. Right. And, and so I felt like when I see kids today, they don't know when I college, my college students today, I mean, they don't know movies from 10 years ago, right? They don't, yeah. they don't see anything. And so had, they have a really limited vision of community across time. Let me just call it that. Right. And so I think there is something to be said for something being lost in this kind of yeah. transition. And, 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 and what she's saying here about the movies being this kind of bridge to the past, um, and as a building block for how to understand the present is, I think, really important. So, yeah. Um, and I think with, uh, with the loss of physical media, it's also easier to not ever rewatch anything. Um, you know, whenever I was growing up, we had, we did not rent movies very often. Um, sometimes when a, something came out that, looked like a good family movie, we would get the newest release. But uh, mostly what we did was just put in something that we already had that we had seen a year ago or less and just watch these same things over and over. And, um, you know, this is uh, like Princess Bride quotes uh, are frequently heard when my family gets together, you know, stuff like it's it's a shared language that we have. We, one of us can just say a line from Hook or uh you know, home alone or whatever. And we don't even have to explain it or <laughs> anything. It's, it's like a shared language. It's something that there's a connection point between me and my siblings and my parents. Um, and then other people, I'm, I made a, f a best friend in high school because he heard, uh, me and another friend quoting Monty Python or something. <laughs> and he came over and, you know, are you guys talking about Monty Python? And, uh, you know, we, we became friends and he actually worked at Blockbuster with me later in college. But uh, it's the, pop culture is a, a powerful connection tool. And um, whenever there's constantly something new being put out there and, and streaming and YouTube and stuff like that, make it easier for just this constant stream of new, new, new. Uh, and, and you don't ever you don't ever quote lines to things because you've only seen it once mm -hmm. and you're onto something new the next night. Um, that's a really good point. I mean, you think about even the, the, the streaming series that are phenomenons like stranger things. I, mm -hmm. I mean, people know the images of it, right? But they don't have the kind of, uh, quotability that, uh, you, a perfect example is the princess bride that you gave already. Right. And so there is something about, uh, there is something different in the way that these things are being absorbed into the culture. And maybe it is because we're not watching them twice because there's always another series. I frankly have given up. I <laughs> I'm trying to <laughs> pretending to catch up on all these series that everyone tells yeah. me I should be watching. And frankly, I don't understand how people are having time to do this. Like so many people that do what I do for a living are telling me about all these series that they've watched. I'm like, you have the same job that I have. <laughs> Why are you able to do this all the time? Where is this time coming from for you? And so, yeah, uh, like I've just given up on uh, even trying to keep up with everything new that's coming out. And I find myself rewatching old movies just maybe out of habit. There was a time for me when I was in high school, I remember watching, there was like a period of like three weeks or something like that. I would come home almost every day from school and watch Jaws. Like <laughs> I had a videotape of Jaws and, uh, and I would watch it almost every day, at least part of it. Right. And, and I just, to me, that movie still like lives in my memory. It was just something, there's something about that. And I suppose you can do that on, on streaming still, but, uh, but people aren't. And I think um, the point that is, underneath what you're describing there 
uh, is community, right? Those yeah. that shared experience, that shared like lived experience, um, is somehow embodied in a way in the old video store culture that streaming culture doesn't embody. And so there's something about community that's getting lost, right? And so that's another sort of key term that I'm sure we'll come back to when we start, when we connect, make the, connect the dots back to the church here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, um, another sort of interesting aspect of the article is the, the copyright issue. Um, so, I, just a brief, she outlines a brief kind of explanation of it. When something was made for the theaters, um, there were certain rights for music, especially being acquired to show these movies in theaters, right? Because that was where they were going to be shown. And then when D, when VHS came up, uh, there was some like, oh, crap, we don't actually have the rights to distribute this on tape, uh, even though it's in the movie, right? And so there's this uh, loss of some rights and weird negotiations, which kept some things actually from being released on DVD or on VHS. And then DVD is a different kind of format and streaming is another different kind of format. Mm-hmm. And so with each kind of new generation of technology, fewer and fewer movies are going to make that cut because of these legal, like weird um, legal loopholes about using a certain song uh, in a certain scene, right? They're either going to have to recut the movie <laughs> with a different song in there or just not release the movie because it's too much trouble, right? And I thought that that was a really fascinating aspect of this, uh, of, of what she's describing there. Yeah. Um, I know she mentions at some point, uh, I think one of the stores she visits has uh, the Wonder Years on VHS with the original music. And that's like a, a rarity because uh, that show in particular has gone through lots of battles with because they use all kinds of 60s music when, in every episode and uh they don't have the rights to the music and i think that show is on netflix or at least it was for a while yeah we were um, watching but it I, with the kids yeah did they have the original music I, in it or was it changed it seems to me that it was changed uh there was a uh a different um there were some, I mean, I don't remember, I mean, remembering back from when I first saw it uh, when it was on television, but it did seem to me that there were some uh, replacement songs in there. Um, I, if anybody's listening out there and knows this uh, story more in detail, that that is actually a really good um, example of, of a property that would really be complicated for transitioning across formats if the lawyers didn't think of it, I mean, in, at the time. And so, yeah. Yeah. And then she points out that, uh, a lot of titles are just not at that level of popularity where they're going to work hard to either get the rights or edit it to take the music out or whatever. And it's just cheaper and easier just to not ever put that movie out. Yeah. There was a TV series for me. Um, when Fox as a network um, first began, it was actually kind of awesome. Married with Children was one of the shows, right? That uh, very innovative, right? And then um, another show that came out, it only lasted like two seasons. It was called Werewolf. And of course I'm, I have very fond feelings for this movie because I love werewolves and, um, or this television show. It was great. And there was, oh, six or eight years ago, a move, some company was going, was this close to having it all released on DVD. And there was a Mike and the Mechanics song in the, in the, in the pilot that they wouldn't give rights to for a dvd release of it and so they just killed the whole project right um and so yeah yeah, it was a really um i'm just furious about that because i love that now of (laughs) course you can go on youtube and probably find pirated versions of all these things right um which is the irony of this these folks that won't 
accept whatever kind of monetary compensation they're going to get. Now people are just going to go steal it for free, right? And you're not going to get anything. And so, um, which is what Mike, I mean, the Canucks deserve thing. I still hate that band because of that. Um, and so, uh, um, but uh, so yeah, that's another example of uh, just a really interesting complication of, um, of this. And you're right. Demand is another thing, another werewolf show. This is a made for TV movie that I remember watching when I was a little, little kid. It's called the boy who cried werewolf. And, uh, and it was about some little boy whose parents were divorced and his dad gets bitten by a werewolf and, uh, no one will believe him and all this sort of thing. And, um, and it was, it's a really very interesting and very great movie actually and and super culturally relevant about like gender relations and and cultural upheavals with there's like these weird group of hippies and all that super actually important movie and yeah. it only recently has been released I, I got a blu-ray edition i think scream factory but it takes one of these kind of specialty houses that mm-hmm. know they have an audience for something like that uh and so it's it's kind of a roll of the dice that a lot of these really important cultural artifacts, important, the boy who cried werewolf scare quotes, important, right? <laughs> but uh, it is super interesting uh, as a document of the, of the early seventies, right. Uh, in the time. Yeah. And it, uh, it, that's the case with a lot of these. And um, it's interesting that it's not even just these really obscure titles. Like at this uh, passage where she says, <coughs> uh, wait, I lost it. The idea that beloved superlative films like Casablanca and Citizen Kane can only be accessed with a subscription to an art house slash classic focused streaming service is quite frankly insane. <laughs> like, yeah. you can't even get those movies uh, without uh, a subscription to, I think, Filmstruck is where she's talking about there. Um, and Star Wars is only available in its first unedited iteration as a VHX box set from 1995. The original trilogy isn't cur- currently streaming anywhere. Yeah. Which I actually still have mine. Um, I knew that was, uh, I knew they were re-editing everything. I have the pre-Greedo yeah. shoots first <laughs> version. with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I actually, I don't even have a VHS player anymore, but I kept my Star Wars trilogy. <laughs> that, <laughs> my, that, my. that did make it to DVD once um, oh, because I, I bought that. Uh, it came, they were releasing it as um, a bonus disc along with the messed with trilogy. And I, I remember I bought that at a black Friday sale. Cause I knew that was the only way I was going to get the real star Wars movies yeah. on DVD. And, uh, that's the ones I watch. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. I have to, I have to go to a Goodwill store and find myself a VHS player. My father-in-law, he probably has 12, uh, in his basement somewhere. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'll, uh, cause just to watch those again on, on altered, uh, I think would be really interesting. Um, and so, um, yeah, so the, the intellectual property and the kind of commercial demands are part of this, right? And so that's that's another thing, another complicating factor here. And we're actually losing touch with kind of an essential part of what makes us who we are, for better and worse. I'm not making mm-hmm. a things were better in the old days argument, right? I mean, some of these old movies have terrible ideology, right? But I, I still think it's important to watch those old movies with terrible ideology that can be great movies in and of themselves, right? But have yeah. problems, they present problems for us, right? Um, Same reason we don't ban books, right? Exactly, uh, that's exactly yeah. it, right? And, and yeah, and this is a technological and economic version of banning. It isn't driven by any kind of... Um, um, malice or anything. It's just sort of when you let the market run things, uh, this is the kind of 
soft banning that's going to be mm-hmm. happening. You still have a, a loss of uh, connection with the past and, and a breakup of community that I think is, uh, uh, that I want to get to here in a second. The idea of curation is actually really uh, a big one here. Um, she mentions Filmstruck, which I've actually subscribed to for a short time. Um, a few months ago, we did with Derek Varn that episode on, um, Andre Rublev and, uh, that's not going to be streaming anywhere. Uh, I mean, I think you can buy it on Amazon or something like that as a streaming version, but I got a free, like a free trial of, of Filmstruck and, and actually kept it for a couple of months after that because it really is, it, uh, it's an antidote. It's filling a market niche, right? Because Netflix and Hulu are leaving these things out of their archives, Filmstruck realizes people want this stuff. And so they have a deal with, I think, Turner and, um, and the Criterion Collection and a lot of these, like, sort of monuments of great classic cinema live there. And I think there's some stat in here, like 60 some percent or eight, no 80 some percent of their holdings were produced before 1990. Uh, and so most of their movies, it's like the opposite of Netflix. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but how many streaming services do you want to, uh, to subscribe to? And that, that's what we're right. going to end up doing is every studio going to make you have to subscribe to their specialty streaming service. And, won't you miss the old days then, right? That's kind of where I'm yeah. I'm going with that. Um, and just as another shout out there, as a horror film fan, um, Shudder is another very curated, it's like five bucks a month, I think, um, but a very curated streaming service for horror films. And, uh, and they have a lot of like world cinema, a lot of um, like sort of B movies, that are kind of you'd never see Netflix would never bother carrying these things right yeah. in many in many cases um but they're if for a fan of the genre they're sort of chosen by other fans of the genre so that kind of service is i think trying to recover some of the what's lost in in the move from blockbuster to Netflix right um and, and kind of the last thing I think that, uh, or do you have anything to say about, I, I'm sorry, I skipped over you for that, uh, the idea of, of curation? Um, not, not much. I think, um, I mean, when she describes some of the curation that these uh, stores in LA do, it, it just sounds really cool <laughs> to, to go and, and have, um, well, she talked, where's that? Uh, she talks about having, uh, stuff organized by director, uh, or by actor or both, uh-huh. um, or by subject and, uh, how that is, is a way that you can kind of get a picture of film history. Even if you're not going to rent all those movies, um, just being able to see them lined up next to each other, uh, is a way to see how this director got from here to here. And, um, and that's kind of a part of the, the education and, and having an appreciation for the movie you do end up taking home. Um, so I like that. Yeah. And there's like a librarian quality to that. Right. And so I, I, and honestly, I tell my students that I, I get that you can Google most things now. Right. Um, but what you lose, I, I, when I was in grad school, especially, but even when I was an undergrad, I just wandering around the stacks looking for a book that I was looking for, I would see other things that I was unaware that I would be mm-hmm. really interested in. Uh, and, but by seeing them in proximity by whoever the Dewey Decibel system or whatever, <laughs> whatever, however they were organized there, um, I, that actually opened up a new world. And that video store is doing a very similar thing, right? I'm looking for this. I'm, there's a picture of like Peter Fonda movies, right? Uh, I'm looking for this 
one particular Peter Fonda movie. Um, but holy crap, here's a whole stack of Peter Fonda movies yeah. I was unaware of, right? And so uh, th- that's uh, I, and it's right next to a uh, Mad or Grindhouse and Exploitation stack, right? And I didn't know I'd be interested in that. Didn't Quentin Tarantino do something about that? All these connections mm-hmm. start to get made by the physical like incarnation of these uh of these of these movies in space and i think that's yeah. really important and the the algorithms don't they work against that whenever you are on netflix your homepage just shows you what is like what you've already watched yeah and so sometimes that is nice because you you get to find these things that are similar to what you like yeah. but then then you're left out of uh, what you're talking about, finding something that you didn't know you wanted to watch. Yeah. Yeah. There's something magical, right. That, that gets left out with this computerized version of, of curation. Uh, and so I, and did you guys have at your blockbuster, like a shelf for that? You got to chose, choose movies. Like I know a lot of video stores had that, like this is, you know, Ricky's, uh, yeah. uh, this is Ricky's employee picks. <laughs> yeah, employee picks. I, we tried that for, you know, a month or two. I, I was kind of disappointed that I didn't get to do that very more often than, than we did. Um, but yeah, I always liked looking at those in, in the stores that did have them. Yeah. And you know, if you knew the guy, especially, or if you tried one of his movies or her movies, then, uh, then you would be like, yeah, we have very similar tastes. Right. And so again, yeah. it's a connection between people being made here. There's also a great Seinfeld about this, isn't there? <laughs> I was just going to say <laughs> Elaine and the little yeah. boy. Right. <laughs> um, so I think if you look back at what we've been talking about, we've been talking about canonicity, um, and the kind of connection to the traditions of the past. We've been talking about embodied community, uh, in uh, coming together and finding people of sort of common, mold and 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 getting to know them as as people right um i don't know how copyright fits into this but uh but that the connection to church isn't that big of a leap and i think that when you suggested this episode that was one of the things that sold me on it was like i think he's totally right do you want to talk a little bit seth about um how you think this helps us think about what we're doing as a as a as a body of believers sure yeah um so Well, canonization, um, I found the line I was looking for. She says, uh, by presenting viewers with a director's entire oeuvre, Cinephile makes it easy for renters to find their own personal entry point into a particular filmography. And and when I read that line, I was thinking about, um, you know, in in more high church traditions, when you've got the icons uh, or the statues, in there that kind of show you these saints from the past. And even in um, like a Baptist church that I've been in where they have these huge portraits of pastors from ages gone by lining the halls. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as cheesy as that is, it uh, it gives a sense of history of where this church has been, how even just dates for like the stone on the outside of the building that says established 1904 or whatever, um, with, with a lot of the flashier, newer kind of churches that um, that we think of as doing things right. Uh, they don't have a sense of history. This, this building was built five years ago. We're going to renovate it next year again. Um, there's, there's nothing on the walls except just this really, you know, hip modern art, maybe, uh, stuff like that. And I understand the, the need to kind of get rid of some of the seventies, stuff that's still cluttering up your sanctuary. Sure, sure. But, uh, 
at the same time, it's you're, we're still losing something, right? We're, it seems like we are the only Christians. This this is just the way that it's always been, is the way that it is now, and there's nothing in in here to remind us of the past, other than you know the Bible and stuff. <laughs> well, some of that even though, right? I mean, you um, we mentioned in the pregame chat here, uh, we were talking about Andy Stanley a little bit, and um, and he's recent, and I actually am trying to work out how to I don't I, I hate to jump on hot topics on this show because I just feel like that's kind of what the show isn't is <laughs> just saying mm-hmm. the loud opinion about what's going on right now um, but the whole Andy Stanley and the Old Testament controversy of three or four weeks ago um, I actually do want to get to that because I think it's a very interesting point and so yeah he's sort of trying to draw a line scripturally uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament because it's difficult to reconcile that Old Testament tradition and the rules of the Old Testament, especially with the kind of loving, inviting version of Christ in the New Testament, right? And Mm -hmm. so, and I think for him, it's just it's less important. He literally says that, right? Uh, yeah. they, they conflict, they, they, they're contradictory. And so we need to just let go of our attachment to these things. Um, and so you do see this filtering into the theology, like this, yeah. this, this kind of uh, style does have an effect on substance in that, in that case, I think. And so, mm-hmm. um, and, and Andy Stanley's church is kind of a, I, and I'm, this is not meant to be a trashing of anybody, of Andy Stanley. He's just sort of a handy example right now of someone who's does really, he's very successful in this new way of marketing, uh, of church sort of marketing and leadership and growth uh, and that mm-hmm. sort of thing, right? Uh, and so he's just sort of a handy example uh, to talk about this. And so, um, um, as so as a, Former, I guess you said, uh, youth pastor. Like, yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts on on what we're losing? You have, you know, you're on the ground. You have like firsthand experience with kids, right? So, what is your? It always felt to me like a pointless endeavor to make church cool and contemporary for kids, right? Because it's yeah. never going to be as cool as what's outside of the church, right? And so right. Uh, it's always some pale imitation of it. And so um, I, I like just as a non-professional, like that's always occurred to me. Uh, and so this sort of break with tradition and this kind of modernization of method and stuff, what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, you know, I can't speak to every situation, but, and I was uh a youth pastor at a smaller church. Um, so we didn't have the ability to do lots of real flashy, crazy stuff. But, um, even I even pulled back from doing what I could do, uh, and, and made it very basic, very just me sitting on a stool with the Bible. I had a projector with, with the scripture up on it. That was about the only technology I'd use that I would play music at the beginning and the end. Um, but, uh, and we would just talk and it, I had a small group, so it it was uh, pretty, it lent itself easily to uh, being able to uh, have a real conversation and, and kind of develop a community. Um, but I think that, and there was always this, like I didn't get a lot of pressure from you know my senior pastor or anything to be doing anything different than I was doing. But the, there's always just kind of this sense in where you're talking with, or listening to these church leadership gurus that 
uh, want to tell you how to grow your church from 200 to 2000 in a month or whatever, uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> that the new thing is always the best thing. And you, as soon as there's a new technology, you jump on that. And because that's, you know, what people want to see. And I think, um, Rachel Hold Evans has a great blog post from way back. That's called, uh, it's something like keep church weird or something. Um, I, that may not be the exact title, but it's, it's basically says something to the effect of, uh, you can get, you know, um, an entertaining light show concert type thing anywhere. Church is the only place that somebody is going to put ashes on your forehead and, uh, the only place that you're going to, you know, eat a piece of bread and somebody tells you it's someone's body. And like, these things are weird <laughs> and we know they are. And that's why we need to be more comfortable with our weirdness and not trying to be, you know, <laughs> what everybody else is trying to be. Um, which was something that I thought about with Blockbuster too. Uh, I don't know if you remember Blockbuster online, yeah, uh, that they were doing for a when while they, when they were trying to catch up with Netflix too late, sort of. Yeah. Yes. That yeah. that's the exact era that I worked there. Okay. Um, so we were, it was a very like, we weren't on commission or anything, but a very high pressure sales mindset. Yeah. Um, that, uh, how many online programs did you guys sell tonight? That was, we had conference calls every Friday and Saturday night to, to call in our numbers on those things. And it was all about the online sales. And, you know, Blockbuster Online was actually a pretty cool thing because it was basically just like the Netflix by mail system. But you could, instead of mailing your envelopes back, you could bring them into a Blockbuster store and exchange it for a store movie. Oh, okay. um, so it, it was kind of better than Netflix, uh, but they were just trying to copy what Netflix was doing. And they put all their, I don't know that this is what, you know, caused Blockbuster to go down or anything, but we got the feeling as employees and even as customers sometimes that like all you care about is this online thing. You don't care about actually like the money that you're making from regular movie rentals. Uh, they didn't even ask about that. It was oh. just how many online programs do you have? Uh, <laughs> or, you know, the, obviously they're not going to be asking us, did you, did you make a relationship with one of your customers and suggest a really cool movie to them? Uh, you yeah. know, but that was just lost in this trying to be Netflix. And then of course, Netflix jumped to streaming was, you know, two miles ahead of where blockbuster was and, and wiped him out. But, uh, and then they even tried, I never saw one of these, but they tried to do a kiosk to compete with Redbox, that, and I don't know that it was actually called the blue box, but that's what we called it, uh, <laughs> in talking about it <laughs> in meetings and stuff. Oh, that's so um, sad. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I feel like the church is, is constantly doing the same kind of thing. And I just want to say, look, the people who are coming in here want you to suggest the movie that they would like. They want to have a conversation with you, or maybe they just want to get a new release and a bag of popcorn and go home. But, they don't want you pushing this other thing on them for the most part. And some of them will benefit from this thing and that's fine. But, uh, I don't know. It just was this very, um, they, they were trying to make something happen just because it was happening somewhere else, I guess. Yeah, no, I, that's absolutely, I, I do remember that. I think I do remember the blockbuster box too. Um, and, and so, yeah, that is, uh, you're totally right. And the analogy is, is spot on, Seth. I think you're totally right. I think you've got this sense where we're, we've got this 
sort of marketing concept, right? And mm-hmm. as a policy almost, right? Uh, and th- determined through analytics and that kind of thing. And we're going to sort of try to rubber stamp that into a space that onto a space that it doesn't really fit onto the church has a goal that isn't the same as, you know, growth as exponential growth in the business model. Right. Um, and so the church's goal is like strong community, not necessarily bigger numbers. Um, just like my podcast, right. It's not about big <laughs> numbers. It's about, you know, f- uh, finding a place for like-minded people to, uh, to, to feel like home and community. Right. And so I think that, um, what you're saying is, the old video store with the guy who, that I, that I grew up with, right. That ended up buying the, the limo service. He, um, like he got to know me personally and I'm sure like everybody else personally as well. Right. And so we actually kind of fed into each other's lives. And I remember having long conversations to him about classic horror films and that kind of thing. And, uh, and that was a really interesting and, and kind of, uh, communal, like warm human activity, right. That I, think of much more fondly than even my time when I went to Blockbuster, when mm-hmm. it was a little, it was more corporate than that. Right. As, right. as you're describing. Right. And certainly I have no emotional con- connection with Netflix. Right. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> um, but a lot of, a lot of people do though. And they, they, I feel like that kind of model of church um, where you, I mean, we visited a church when we were in Florida once visiting my in-laws at winter down there. And uh, we went in one Sunday to this, big church that was near them. And so that's why we went and it had like fog machines and, and like, it was just this, the sermon was actually pumped in via, via screen, like, Mm -hmm. um, and I just was, I couldn't wait to get out of there. It was, and it was like, and we, it was dark. Like I couldn't see anybody around me. All I could see was the stage. I was like watching a performance. Right. Um, but not in a, I wasn't watching it with other people. I was watching it while other people were watching it all as isolated individuals. Right. And, and yeah. I think that's the opposite of what church should be. Right. And, and yeah. so, yeah. There was a line in the article that I loved where she talked about um, just shopping next to other people. Like there's a scene where she describes having a conversation with like a world war two vet and a young kid about, uh, movies and um, they, you know, they have a box of donuts on the counter that they offer her. And she talks about the community that they experience at, at this store. But then um, at another point, she says something about uh, how that it doesn't even have to be that you're having a conversation, just that you're shopping next to other people who are on a similar uh, quest as you to find, uh, you know, a piece of art that is going, going to at least entertain them, if not mean something to them. Um, and, and just being in the same room with other people that are like minded and, and kind of having that awareness that that we're in this together on our own. Yeah, um, it, that's even powerful. And and that's something that that you get in church when you may not even be talking to this person, but you're you're singing along with them. You can hear their voice yeah. over the top of the band. Yeah. Um, you you can you know, the lights are on. So you see them, you know, going up and taking communion together. Uh is that is community and it should go beyond that we should get to know each other and and you know um speak into each other's lives in different ways but we don't even in some of these the churches that you were just talking about like we don't even have the presence of other people almost Yeah. yeah it's just you in a dark room staring at a screen or a guy on a stage at at best yeah yeah which is you know like me you know 
Netflixing and chill, right? Or whatever that, whatever that means. And so, um, yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, what you're describing is kind of, so we're talking about two kinds of community though, right? We're talking about an immediate community of people who have the same values in these kind of boutique video stores that you can find in really hip areas, right? Um, and so, and, and in churches. Um, and then you're also talking about a community across time and, and the video store will have the tradition of film next to, you know, what people are doing now with, with that tradition, right? Um, the church, um, those many churches by giving into this kind of growth driven mindset and, and being immediate, um, they might be creating a form of immediate community of like-minded people who are basically consume mindless consumers. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't. That's a, that's a harsh statement. I, I, this is okay. It's this time for the broad brush is coming back on the outside. Zephyr's on the inside. Painting with the broad brush again. I hadn't done that in a while, but um, <laughs> I am painting with a broad brush here. The um, uh, the idea. That, certainly, people go to those churches, Andy Stanley's church or wherever, and have authentic religious experiences. Uh, and I'm not discounting that. Um, I do think that the the um the consumerism of it is suspicious okay and that that's kind of the extent that I want to make here I don't want to I don't want to make too big a point that I'm a bigger point that I'm trying to make here but um um and so but yeah w- while they might have this kind of immediate connection with other people who are narrowly focused on the right now, my emotions right now, my, my spiritual high that I'm getting right now, um, that bigger context of tradition being losing the old portraits of the pastors or the icons in an Eastern Orthodox church, right? Uh, like the, it's, it's still disconnected from another kind of community that's also really important and that continually informs the, the present community or should. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I think that's, um, a big difference between kind of, well, the real thing is that they, uh, the focus on content because you can, you can get your sermon or whatever, you know, the content you want to communicate into people's brains through multiple types of means, um, you know, just as easily online as you can in person and, and all that. And that's what these guys will say. Um, is that, you know, I can communicate with a lot more people and I'm not, I'm not trying to make the, uh, what was that article that they talked about on the Christian humanist podcast, the, that like podcasting is killing preaching or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying don't put your sermons online. I mean, that's great. And it's convenient when you miss church to be able to listen. Um, but I think that the posture of this is all about getting our content into more ears yeah. versus a more of a liturgical mindset of like, you come here to participate yeah. in something that people have part- been participating in throughout the ages. And we may update some of the styles in our worship or whatever, but we're still connected to them. And I think that's, you know, why the sacraments are so important. And, um, and honestly, those things get left behind sometimes in, in kind of a screen churches um i don't know that they never do them but they it it doesn't seem to be a focus yeah uh the way it is in some more traditional environments um and and that too the other thing i i was thinking about as it related to the video stores was kind of the physicality of experience um versus just consuming content yeah um she talks about uh let's see 
There's no question about the tangible mood boost I got from visiting every single one of these video stores in real life. Even if I browsed alone and didn't speak to anyone else. Oh, that's the line I was thinking of. Uh, just being among other people, hearing them talk, and making a physical investment in visiting a video store felt better than any night I've ever spent browsing streaming platforms. Um, can't find the part where she talks about like the glossy cover on yeah. the VHS and yeah. uh, just feeling, you know, <laughs> that. And there's something to be said for, you know, feeling the, the wooden pew against your back and, uh, you know, smelling the, the musty books and, yeah. uh, you know, the incense if you're at that kind of church or um, the just the sensory experience. Um, and at, even like I, I, when I was growing up, I really hated the uh, handshake part yeah, of the yeah. church service yeah. because I'm introverted and yeah. I didn't want to do that. But even that, uh, my my current pastor said that that we're not going to stop doing that part because I want everyone who comes here that to not leave without being touched. Some of these people won't be touched the rest of the week yeah. by anyone. Yeah. And that was really powerful to me. And even as uncomfortable as I am, like just kind of randomly saying hi to someone, um, having that, that importance of physical touch of, of sensory things that are happening, not just mind, you know? Um, I mean, I think that sermons are important and, uh, all that kind of stuff, but I think that that's a big thing that we're losing. It's not just, it's not just that we're losing um, history or uh, community because you can have online community and sure. things like that too. But there's something kind of mysterious about the the physical aspect of of worship that I think is is lost. Yeah, yeah. It's one thing I have like kind of mixed feelings about the podcast because I feel like the people that come on this show and the people who communicate with the show uh, are, I feel like I'm more in simpatico with, uh, with them than almost anybody else I know with few exceptions, <laughs> you know, and that's awesome that that community exists, but I, how much awesomer would it be if we were in a room together rather than, you know, listening to each other over electronic means. Right. And so I, I have, I'm very grateful for the online community, um, that the podcast offers me, but I also wish I lived in a world where I didn't need it because, um, because <laughs> all those people were in my actual life. Right. And, and yeah. uh, yeah. And we could, you know, have, we could grill out together or whatnot. Right. It'd be great to be sitting at a grill and a picnic table with you, Seth, right now, having the same conversation for is what I'm saying. Right. And so, um, um, yeah. And going back to what you were saying about, um, the, ex the lonely experience of watching something, on loan, like via some Netflix or, you know, stream or whatnot versus going into a, a space and, and looking at something with other people. How often, so you can, I can get the same content if I'm watching a movie via streaming versus via, you know, physical media that I have to go somewhere to get. But how often have I in my life sat there and just scrolled through Netflix for three hours and end up yeah. not watching anything. Right. And so I right. have all the options in front of me. Uh, and I never walked out of a video store without something. Right. Uh, because I'm mm -hmm. holding those, those objects in my hand, reading the backs. Someone will say, yeah, I saw that movie. It was either good or it was great or it was terrible. Right. And so, uh, and, and so those kinds of conversations that, you know, build community also 
get that content into your brain uh, if that's always sort of you're interested in. Um, and when you were talking also about the importance of the physical experience, the kind of liturgical experience, um, the Rachel Held Evans essay that you um, cited there, um, I will try and find and put on the show notes, everybody, because it sounds great, um, actually. And the idea that keeping church weird by not keeping church weird, by making it kind of mainstreamed and in line with current trends and tastes and that kind of thing, what you lose the ability to do is crack people out of those daily routines that are keeping them, you know, focused on, they're keeping them unfocused on God, right? And so that weird experience with the smells and the, and the whatnot and the, the uncomfortable pews and all those kinds of things, that all builds into this liturgical experience. And I'm all but quoting James Smith here, James K.A. Smith, and um, his um, new book is uh, You Are What You Love, and it's all about an argument for um, recognizing day-to-day life as secular liturgies that actually train your your desires uh, and, 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 and train you into thinking about whatever it is you're thinking about just by the, the physical activities and the physical settings that you go through. Uh, and that's why church is so important to actually go to and put up with in some cases, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. I mean, some cases it isn't a comfortable experience. And if someone's spreading ashes on my forehead, that's not a normal experience, right? And that's why it's good is because it snaps mm-hmm. you out of that. Right. And so as uncomfortable as it might have been and as inconvenient as it might have been to go to a video store to find a movie, it was actually had some sort of developmental uh, uh, work was being done there. Right. Uh, And we lost some of that just as by making the church experience too streamlined and too online and too whatnot. um, We're also losing something, um, I think, very valuable and um, and developmental there as well. Um, yeah. And I, I think that goes for um, community. Like when you were saying that, uh, you know, some of your online relationships are better than some of your real life relationships. And I think, you know, I feel the same way. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and well, those people don't know me, but I, I feel like I know them yeah. and uh, I'm more interested in them oftentimes than I am in my neighbor who lives next door. Um, but and, and so that's like a curated community uh, that basically um works the same way as Netflix saying you watch this, you might like this. And I like that about Netflix. <laughs> like it, sure. It's, it's helpful to, to have that kind of outlet, um, for basically you're giving me what I want. Sure. Uh, but it's, it, it doesn't replace the, the kind of the hard work of, you know, when you go into the movie store and get, um, you have to spend your time and your gas going there. You pay for the movie, not just a, you know, a $10 a month, thing that you're going to be out anyway so you're invested in it and you might get a movie that you don't like that much but you're probably going to watch it you're probably going to finish it yeah because you because it cost you something sure and i think in the same way those personal physical relationships are not sometimes as what we would want them to be Uh, sometimes those people don't click with us the way that uh some of our online friends do but it's it's costing us something we're more invested in that and so it can grow us in a way that um we wouldn't otherwise yeah and i just want to recognize one of the implications i think of what we're saying here or what we're suggesting by talking about church as video store um is that it's very countercultural right now within church to think about 
church as a curated experience for a specific kind of person, right? Mm. That's almost blasphemous to people who right. deal in the kind of um, seeker, seeker-oriented um, theologies and, and that kind of thing, right? Um, we have to be open to anybody. If anybody feels excluded from this, we're doing something wrong, right? Um, and what we're saying kind of runs against that um, on some level. I, I don't know how far I want to take that. I certainly don't want to make church unwelcoming, right? Right. Um, but I do think that we shouldn't adjust church just to welcome, right? I mean, church has to have some formative, uh, some sort of formative substance to it as well, right? Uh, and so that's to me one of the paradoxes, maybe, that we're bringing up, and I don't feel entirely comfortable with what I'm seeing, what I'm thinking, right? You know, like what I'm thinking sounds right to me, but I also, it sounds kind of dangerous and weird and exclusive and elitist too. Right. Yeah. And, and so I yeah. don't want to go there, but I also think it's important to go there. And so I, I'm kind of holding two opinions about what my thinking is there in one, in one hand here. Well, I think um, there is a difference between kind of a, a consumer mindset. Um, and instead of, Instead of thinking about, well, uh, this could be for, for certain kinds of churches that may be money, but it's not thinking about money. It's thinking about like souls or whatever. Sure. Um, but it's, it's, it's basically currency. the same kind of uh, the same thing as capitalism, you're, you know, yeah. uh, where you're trying to do whatever you can to increase that profit. Uh, yeah. and, and it's not you're, uh, you can understand why they do that, because like obviously we want people to know Jesus. We want, you know, as many people as, as possible to, to have this hope that we have. And that's a good motivation, but it, it becomes distorted. And there's a difference, I think, between keeping something um, curated or different um, and being unwelcoming. I mean, I think sometimes something that looks different than everything else is actually interesting, mm -hmm. not, not exclusive. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I could be wrong. <laughs> there are a lot of people that go to, um, the mega churches. So like they, they're probably not doing everything wrong. They may be reaching a certain type of person that wouldn't be reached by the kind of churches we're talking about. But I think that there's just, it, it well, at the beginning of the episode, I think you were talking about, um, or maybe this is before we started recording, but uh, qu quality over quantity. Yeah. And it's that kind of thing, like quality discipleship and community over just as many people as we can get kind of thing. Yeah. I, this is, I guess it's, I'm not a pastor or, and I'm not in ministry at all. Right. And so I'm sure that those people who out, who are, that are out there, think about this all the time, right? Is that kind of tension between wanting to reach as many people as possible and wanting to actually have it to be a valuable experience. Um, and, and, and so obviously Netflix reaches many more people than my neighborhood video store could be, right? Yep. Could, but it was a much more formative and delightful experience for me in that space than Netflix ever could be. Right. Um, and so, I, again, this is a, a tension that I don't know that we can ever resolve. Uh, this is uh, a something, yeah, that I don't even know how to uh, how to address. But I do think there's a sense that the, the video stores that she's talking about in this article are kind of hipster havens, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so hipsterism 
as a, I mean, it has this kind of elitist exclus- exclusivity to it, right? Um, anybody's free to join that community, but they have to kind of earn their way in, into those communities, into those hipster communities. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want church to be that, right? I don't want it to yeah. be this kind of like going to a guitar store and having to prove that you can do the stairway to heaven lick or something. Right. You know? And so yeah. before they'll look at you seriously. Uh, and so, <laughs> um, but, uh, but I also think that it is important to make those kinds of spaces where something is demanded of you and something changes. Um, and, Honestly, I just recently have been thinking about this recent uh, weird kind of coincidence. A couple of weeks ago, um, my pastor from uh, Cleveland, uh, he and his family uh, left to become missionaries uh, in, uh, in in Europe. And uh, so there was a big going away party for them. And that same weekend on Sunday, that was on Friday, on Sunday, my old pastor from growing up, uh, he was retiring. And so I got to <laughs> say goodbye to both of these eras of church in my life. Um, and my pastor from Akron pastored a very kind of normal suburban church, right? Where everybody's kind of normal, right? And our church in Cleveland was not that. We were, <laughs> we were all kind of freaky, uh-huh. right? And, uh, it was an inner city church and, and we had all sorts of dysfunction that comes along with that. The, the people who weren't, you know, by society standards dysfunctional were still weird, right? And, uh, and, and so, I I left that party thinking that I feel like for a church to actually be doing anything useful, somebody's probably got to have to think of it as a cult, right? Um, If (laughs) if it doesn't look like a cult from the outside to some degree, um, is it doing anything really valuable? And I really think our church probably did look like a cult to some people from the outside, the normies out there, right? Uh, But we did such great, valuable things as, as as a community, right? And so... I think the same way about these weird little video stores that are weird and exclusive and cult-like, uh, and maybe church can learn something from that, or that the American church should be less normal. And, and, and like you said, keeping church weird, uh, <laughs> the, it might be, that might be the solution there. Um, and so I don't know what kind of church traditions you come from, but I've, you know, dabbled uh, quite a bit in my life so yeah it was a normal congregation we were a christian missionary alliance uh, in, in cleveland so it wasn't like we were some uh, scientologists or anything like that yeah <laughs> yeah uh, but go ahead uh, well i actually grew up in the uh, church of god anderson uh, oh, right. which is you know what that is uh-huh um it's very similar to nazarene and yeah. cma actually there those are all kind of offshoots of methodism yeah um in a more evangelical kind of way. Uh, and so I, up until last year, that's, I've always attended one of those and now we are at a Methodist church. Um, so it's a little more liturgical. Yeah. Um, and that's something we were looking for, honestly, cause I, I had, um, well, been listening to podcasts and, um, just discovering all this meaning that's in these things that growing up, I would have just thought of as kind of these empty, uh, traditional things. And, um, they're very important to me now. And, and I love, you know, what, and the church we're at now, they're, they're not super, uh, high church. We do pretty contemporary worship and stuff, but there's still just these elements of, of tradition that are kind of sprinkled throughout the service that, that are really, uh, meaningful to me. And, you know, I'm a millennial, so, um, I have a little bit of that hipster bent. Like I, <laughs> I, I don't want to be that way, yeah. but, uh, I still, I mean, I'm into vinyl. I, uh, yeah. you know, uh, authenticity is, yeah. <laughs> is a thing that I like, um, generally. Um, and there's actually this book that, uh, that I read a couple years ago called Jesus Bread and Chocolate by John J. Thompson. Um, and he, 
he's not really recommending anything specific. It's kind of just an examination of kind of the um, artisanal culture of, you know, uh, there's a chapter on bread, a chapter on chocolate, coffee, beer, uh, gardening, um, artisanal music. And then he relates all that kind of to to church and how um, people are kind of looking for this more kind of back to the roots, um, you know, really personal kind of thing. And that, that may be kind of a generational thing that, that I'm more looking for than, you know, some other people, but no, but I think what you're, what you're saying is that people are looking for something that breaks away from just consumerism, right? Uh, that, that consumerism has revealed itself to be meaningless and kind of hollow to so many people. Uh, and that they're seeking that. I think that's what's behind this kind of reinvigoration of more orthodox, uh, religious denominations, these liturgical, these heavily liturgical mm-hmm. denominations. And even, I mean, there are Nazarene churches now that do like, uh, more like, more orthodox versions of communion and we practicing Lent was, would never have happened when I was a kid in a Nazarene church. Um, and people do that a lot now. So I think there is a, a a desire for something and and the whole idea we've done shows about authenticity and hipsterism already on this, on this podcast. (laughs) But, and so I get that there is a consumerism of a type behind hipster (laughs) activities. Right. But I, I, it's at least to me, it's sincere. If it's not authentic, if it's not authentic, it's sincere. It's like somebody at least trying to find something meaningful. And I'm drawing on Lionel Trilling there and his sincerity and authenticity, um, book. I, I will also, as you call Jesus bread and chocolate, I will, I will totally, um, uh, find that and put it in or a link to the Amazon page for that, uh, yeah. to, uh, for our listeners. Cause it actually sounds very close. I mean, we did also an episode of, oh, so about a year ago or so on, uh, shop class, a soul craft. Oh yeah. Was, I like that episode a lot. Yeah. That was uh, Todd Pedler's idea. And, uh, and, uh, and Pedler said he'd come back on uh, in a couple weeks here. And we're going to talk about, uh, militarized space, uh, since we're going to have a space force now. Space force. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So we're going to have an episode on that hopefully here next week. And so, uh, in the next couple of weeks at least. And so, um, but yeah, the idea behind that book, um, shop classes, soul craft by Matthew Crawford is, to reimmerse yourself into the materiality of the world, right? And, and to not just accept fast consumer versions of things, but to, you know, uh, to sort of engage yourself with the small and, and the difficult and the curated, right? Uh, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think that this all fits this. This episode is more and more fitting in with the broad brushstrokes of this, uh, <laughs> of this, uh, of this podcast. So, um, I, so grateful, Seth, that you reached out to me and, uh, you're welcome anytime. Uh, you have an idea, uh, send me a, an email sure. again and, uh, and I will be sure to have you back on. This was a great conversation. Do you have anything you'd like to add before we, uh, before you have a blog? Does that blog still active? I mean, can people reach uh, you? I do have, um, well, I actually, this is an old blog and that I don't write on anymore, but, uh, I had one called chriswellreflects.wordpress.com uh, that I have like <laughs> only like three posts on. But I did do a post about um, when uh, the, what was that? In 2015, when we hit that back to the future date. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> I wrote a post about how th- that kind of reminded me again of this. It was not as long as this piece or not as good as this piece. But uh, just talking about kind of the future that we were promised in the 80s and, and kind of the future that we have now, which is not that. Uh, yes. And I, 
I have a picture that I took of um, an old Blockbuster, the last one that held out here in Springfield, that turned into an AT&T store. Uh, with, and it still had, it's gone now, but it still had the big Blockbuster like marquee out front with the ticket-shaped sign, and it was empty. And so there's just this empty Blockbuster ticket in front of an AT&T store, and I thought that is, that's the picture of the future that we got. <laughs> but, it's symbolic, uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's that. I, I currently blog at um, wineandvinegarblog.wordpress.com, and I'm not very frequent, but I'm trying to get back into that. So I'll put a link to that anyway, uh, for folks that want to learn more about you. Uh, the thing I love about this show, everybody is getting the chance to talk to in people who are way more interesting than I am. Right. And Seth is one of those people. Right. And so, um, this is, uh, this has been a lot of fun for me. Any last thoughts on blockbuster or, uh, some cool recommendation for something you've been watching or reading? Uh, I have one more book that's called um, Immeasurable by Sky Jatani. That's uh, J-E-T-H-A-N-I. Um, and this is more for, uh, the subtitle is Reflections on the Soul of Ministry in the Age of Church, Inc. Um, and it's it's more of a ministry book, but I think, you know, any lay leaders or, or people who are just interested in how ministry works would also get a lot out of it. It's kind of a series of essays on just um, against kind of the consumerist mindset in in ministry and that's that was a great book too yeah awesome um i'll go the opposite way um i actually speaking of netflix i want to give them props they do some interesting original material they do uh, a uh <laughs> i just watched yesterday uh an interesting horror film called the ritual um and uh, i actually thought it was really cool and uh it has a lot of really interesting religious um ramifications uh shall we say and uh it's a it's a terrific group of people lost in the wilderness monsters show up uh story and uh and it's uh it's it's worth uh, an hour and a half of your time so if you ever go to netflix watch the ritual uh and let me know what you think of it i thought it was interesting enough um it did not go where i thought it was going to go i will say that so um <laughs> seth uh lancaster thank you so much for uh for thanks a reaching out to me and B reaching out to me was such an awesome topic and C uh, for doing such a great job in, t in talking about it here. I really uh, have enjoyed talking to you. Uh, like I said, anytime you are more than welcome to, uh, to join the show here. So, um, as always, you can find us at iTunes. Uh, I reiterate my uh, request for you to go back and uh, give us a review. Um, sectarianreview at gmail.com is where you can find um, our email address and you can send us ideas or converse with me personally or privately. Um, the Facebook page is a great place. If you like that Facebook page, you'll get all of our posts for this kind of stuff and uh, you can comment on what you uh, have seen and heard. And uh, and I love the, those extended conversations that come out there. Um, and of course, we're on Twitter and all that other kind of stuff. But uh, if you... Uh, or listening to the show, you probably know how to find all that. Uh, I am for Seth Lancaster. I am Danny Anderson. Thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. You're not going down. You're not going down.